This is what the greatest thing about sports is. You play to win the game. Hello? You play to win the game. Welcome. It's yours. It just depends on how much it means to you. This is a chance of a lifetime. You can't be afraid to go out and compete and do whatever it takes. To the coaches. Cannot play with them. Cannot win with them. Cannot coach with them. Can't do it. Clubhouse. I don't think we have an avenue to say anything anytime. So you're talking to the wrong guy there. I think we're like the mushrooms. Just keep them in the dark and throw the crap on them and hope it grows. Now here's your coach's clubhouse host, Nicole Auerbach. Hey everyone, this is Nicole Auerbach and welcome again inside the Coaches Clubhouse, the podcast where we delve deep into what drives coaches on and off the sidelines. This week, we're talking to Super Bowl winning head coach Dick Vermeil. His victory with the Rams in Super Bowl 34 was the culmination of a lifetime in the sport. He's coached at every level imaginable over six decades. He's been named coach of the year in high school, junior college, division one, and the NFL. And he helped invent the position of a special teams coach in the late 1960s. He turned in one of the great Rose Bowl upsets of all time at UCLA and took three previously losing NFL franchises to the playoffs. Such a rich football life deserves an enjoyable second act, and he's achieved that by literally going back to his roots in the Napa Valley. After growing up around wine, he's created his own wine label using grapes from a plot of land his great-grandfather purchased near the turn of the 20th century. You'll hear just how passionate he is about the product he produces and the sport that's consumed his life for so many decades. Here's my conversation with Dick Vermeule. Was coaching something that you always wanted to do? Like, how how did you stumble into that as your career path? Originally, I had planned to stay in my hometown in Calistoga in the Napa Valley and my dad had a garage right next to the house and he was going to tear the old building down and build a new one. And my brother and I were going to stay there and it was going to become Vermeil and Sons garage. Okay. It was called the owl garage named that because he worked all night, like an owl's up all night. And then a high school coach, my senior year came to Calistoga high school, Bill Wood, his first coaching job. And halfway through the season, he told me he thought I could play college football. And no one ever told me that before. You know, we only had 130 kids in the whole school. And uh, that was exciting. And so I decided, uh, geez, I'd like to do that if I could. So I went to junior college. I hadn't really uh, thought about a college prep or anything because I was going to stay and become a mechanic and get involved with my dad's racing association. They ran race cars. And that was his hobby and passion. In fact, I've restored two of the old ones myself. Oh, wow. anyway, and I got involved in playing in junior college and had a little success went to San Jose State, and I decided, you know, I love this game, and maybe someday I could teach it. So I decided I was going to be a high school football coach, and I got my first job was at Del Mar High School in 1959 as an assistant to Bill Walker, and then the next year, I was at Hillsdale High School in San Mateo, right next to the airport there, for as head coach, and I coached there for three years, and I went into junior college coaching, became head coach, and uh, then went from there to Stanford University. John Ralston hired me, and that's where I met up again with Bill Walsh. Bill was a graduate assistant at San Jose State when I was playing there, so we developed a relationship at that time. And then from there, uh, from Stanford, uh, George Allen hired me the first special teams coach 
you know, I did that in 1969. No one had a special teams coach at that time. And it was exciting. I learned a lot. How does that, how does that come up when it's the first of its kind? Well, you know, George Allen did it because he felt they lost a playoff game. Uh, and after the season was over, they graded the special teams for the whole year at that time, 14 games. And then the regular games, they weren't playing 16 at that time. And they found out that the big playoff game they lost because uh, the special teams were inefficient. And it was the first time they really graded him because they only only had six coaches on the staff, you know, and, and no team special teams coach. So they all did it together on threw it together on Saturday. So he said that wasn't good enough. So he decided to hire somebody that uh, would work on it full time, grade every player, every snap, every game, organize the practices, and he would give them more practice time. So that's how I got in the National Football League. From there, I became offensive coordinator at UCLA. Uh, with Tommy Prothrow, then Prothrow went to the uh, to the Rams, so <laughs> Los Angeles Rams. So I went back to the Los Angeles Rams as the offensive coordinator. And then when Coach Prothrow was released, they asked me to stay. I worked there with Chuck Knox in, and then I went back to UCLA as head football coach. We won the Rose Bowl in '76, beating Ohio State, and Philadelphia Eagles hired me, and that started my NFL career all over again. What's the most fun level to coach as someone who's done so many? Well, you know. Uh, Every level was fun for me. You know, when, when, what you do for a living, if it's a passion, it's fun every day, even in the bad days. The bad days make the, the wonderful days even better because you learn from your mistakes and you mature and you move on. But uh, the most fun, I choose, I don't know. I, I was, If I had a choice to go back into any one of them, I'd go back to NFL because it's all football. You know, you have personnel departments, you have big staffs, and you don't have to recruit. You don't have summer job problems like we used to have in the old days, grade problems, girlfriend problems. All <laughs> like Many times what you do is you trade one set of problems for another. But overall, the NFL was a, a great experience for me. And not that the high school wasn't, the junior college and the college. I, I maintain great relationships with kids off all those teams today. But the NFL would, was very good to me. And those players and my coaching staffs, I learned so much from all my coaches that worked with me and for me. So I, I'm sort of sit with a Super Bowl win and a few Coach of the Year honors based on riding on the shoulders of some real good people, and real good players, you know, and I've coached Hall of Famers and MVPs and that kind of stuff. And uh, But the NFL, regardless of what you might think, yes, there's a lot of pressure. But, you know, I felt pressure when I was the high school coach. It's all relative. You know, you grow. I was at UCLA. I felt real pressure, you know. Uh, and then you get in the NFL, you sort of grow and learn how to handle it. And, you know, I didn't do a great job of keeping things in proper perspective. And that's why I left coaching in 82, because I allowed a passion to become an obsession. And when you do that, it's dangerous, regardless of what profession you're in. When I came back, I was a lot more mature. We had bigger staffs and we had more facilities, uh, more draft choices, more everything. And uh, anyway, great way to make a living. It's cheating for a living, believe me. So when you say that, you know, you notice it's an obsession, it's something you're going to step away from. A lot of coaches probably think that or realize that or realize that after the fact, but they don't stop and they don't step away and, and then come back into the sport in a healthier way. Like, what was that process like? You're talking about how much you love doing this for a living. That decision to step away from coaching must have been difficult. Yeah. Well, you know, really, I found out I didn't think I was doing as good a job as the team deserved. First team won last year. We came out after the Super Bowl loss in 80, in 1981. We won 6 0. We were the only undefeated team in football. And then we sort of went down and we got beat in the playoffs, New York Giants. Then the next year was the strike year. And I left after that year. I just, I got so, I, I couldn't get over a loss. 
and I would blame myself and I'd be thinking about what I should have done to win last week when I should be thinking more seriously about what I should be doing this week to win the next one. And I, I felt, and I, I told myself I wasn't going to do it, but I did it. And I, I couldn't turn it off. And, uh, and the other thing that happened is then the winning didn't seem as exciting because you start worrying about the next one two minutes after the win. And it's sort of a, a roll, rolling downhill type thing. And uh, I can remember different examples that sort of startled me. And I said, you know, I, uh, I better take a break. So I, I left coaching on my own accord. And I only planned to be out a couple of years and get reorganized and get myself back in great shape. And I had opportunities to go back and I just never went because all of a sudden, uh, you know, I went into broadcasting. They doubled my salary. I was making $75,000 a year as a head football coach in the NFL. I went to 150 going my first year in CBS working <laughs> 16 weekends. I just wanted to, I just want, I did not want to end up in the same hole I was in. So I didn't go back until later on when the Rams asked me to go back and I did and it's the best second best decision I ever made in my life. So you mentioned um, crossing paths with Bill Walsh early in your career. What were some of those early introductions to kind of the philosophy and schemes and, and things that obviously took over the NFL? Well, you know, Bill was coaching defense when we worked together at Stanford. I was the freshman coach. He was a secondary coach. And then he left Stanford and I moved on to the varsity and became the quarterback coach. Bill was always at the board. You know, he was left-handed, and he was uh, he would go up to be talking offense during the season, and he's coaching defense. And I can remember to this day, I've told a story many times, John Ralston, our head coach, wonderful human being, walking along behind him, racing, erasing everything he was putting on the board <laughs> offense. He's supposed to be coaching defense. But he couldn't help himself. And uh, he had uh, some concepts that he really, really believed in, and he went on and he actually coached a semi-pro team in San Jose after the Raiders for, for one year. And then he, then he went to Cincinnati to coach the offense for Paul Brown. But anyway, his concepts were rhythm, timing, uh, discipline, short, deliberate passing game. A run was almost like a, a pass was almost like a running play in many ways. And a great communicator. And he was a great talent guy, obviously. You know, you could. Joe Montana in the third round, then you move to get Rice and people think he's crazy and they're both in the Hall of Fame, okay? So uh, it wasn't an accident. He just had that feel. And uh, we, we were very close uh, and uh, shared a lot of good glasses of wine together. And in fact, the little wine business I'm in, Bill would be in it if he were alive today. He uh, We've talked about it many times. Uh, if we ever did anything, we'd do it together. But uh, no, he, he was an influence in leadership, uh, organization, detail, even as an assistant. But see, we remained good friends all the way up to his passing. And uh, he was one of the reasons I went back into coaching because he was always banging on me. You got to get back in this thing. What are you doing broadcasting football games? Anyway, I learned a lot from him. Tell me about the miracle in the Meadowlands. Like, I just want to ask about a couple of these games that you're a part of that are just in football lore. Well, I had nothing to do with it other than coaching a team that was going to lose the ball game <laughs> until the last <laughs> play of the game. Herman Edwards had a lot to do with it, as you know. He's done a great job in his coaching career. And Marion Campbell was our defensive coordinator, and we had a, a very good defensive team there. We, defense, our defensive team never got the credit it should have gotten it in that era. But anyway, uh, you know, it's the last play of the game. They're going to win it. First time they're going to beat us in the uh, sixth game. We'd beaten them five times in a row. It's the only team we could beat consistently. And all of a sudden they're going to beat us. 
and it comes down to the last play, and instead of kneeling, they snap the ball. Pasarzik's going to hand it off to Zonka. It hits Zonka on the hip. The ball bounces on the ground. Here comes Herman Edwards off our right side. Their left side picks it up running in. I'm standing. I'm just ready to take my headset off and concede the game. Chuck Bednarik, the Hall of Famer 60-minute guy, who was an honorary assistant, was standing right next to me. I, and I was saying something to him or something, and I was upset, you know, and Lo and behold, I see Herman running in. I didn't see the very first part of it, in fact. <laughs> but I remember, and there's Herman running in. Then I saw everybody. I mean, it became a big pile of players. Even our media uh, guy, uh, assistant media guy, Chick Macaron, skinny little guy running out of the field, jumping on the pile. You know, I've been asked about that play more than any other play that I've been involved with in coaching. Okay. Wow. It's amazing. It's it's sometimes that I can almost predict when they're going to start calling me on it. The second game of the season between <laughs> the Eagles and the Giants, someone dreams up a new story about a different way to present it, you know. And uh, anyway, it was a miracle. It was a miracle. But you have to give Herman Edwards some credit. He didn't quit on the last play of the game. He was coming. Yeah, you got to experience some things that other people just dream of. I mean, like, I'm wondering, you're the first coach that we're having on that's won a Super Bowl. Like, what does that moment feel like? Well, you know, I'd say uh, that was late in my career. I'd lost one, so I know the difference between winning and losing one. And I don't think it can feel as good to you winning one unless you've lost one to compare it with. (laughs) Okay. But it's humbling. It's humbling. It's, oh, my God. We've won a world championship, you know, and I, right away, I started thinking about my family. I started thinking about all the, the people that had made a contribution to getting there. I started thinking about the city of St. Louis, what was going to happen. I started thinking about our ownership, everybody. It's, I was just sort of overwhelmed with the thought of everybody that's that's going to get to enjoy the, to get there, you know, and uh, it, you know, it takes the same thing to go to a Super Bowl and lose as it does to go there and win. You know, unlike the NBA or the uh, Major League Baseball, it's not the best of seven. It's one ball game, and you lose it, it's over. But uh, to this day, probably the finest game I think I've ever been involved with in as a head coach in pro football was our NFC Championship game in Philadelphia. It took five years to get there. We didn't have any draft choices my first three years. And when there, we win the NFC Championship. And at that time, I was younger. I was my own offensive coordinator, my own quarterback coach. I was calling my own plays. I had full control of the football program. And uh, so you you feel a little more deeply involved. Later in my career, more sophisticated, more delegation, more leadership responsibility spread over the, whole, the entire organization. And uh, great, great to win it. Winning it is a humbling, humbling experience. It, it really is. What was it like as someone who's coached in Kansas City and Philly to watch those organizations win Super Bowls? You know, I'm fortunate. You know, I've never been fired as a head football coach. So I've, I've always lost, left an organization in a good relationship position. I was very close to the owner of the Eagles, very close to Lamar Hunt, very close to Georgia. And uh, when you work for Kansas City Chiefs, you work for the Hunt family. Then I worked for Carl Peterson who was with me at UCLA. He was with me in Philadelphia. He'd run the Chiefs for 20 years. That's the reason I went back after retiring from the Ram wing. But you work for those people. And uh, when you work for wonderful people, your motives are not selfish at all. You want to win so so they can win. I I have one regret in my coaching career that that I I just, I don't like it, is the fact that I was not able to handle 
Mr. Hunt, Lamar Hunt, the Lamar Hunt AFC Championship Trophy, then on to the Super Bowl. And I'm so pleased that Andy Reid got it done. Great football coach, great job. And uh, for the for the right family. Now, Lamar's gone. He didn't get to experience, but he did a long time ago in the third one. Anyway, uh, when you work in that environment for those kind of people, it's a lot bigger than you. It's very, very meaningful. And to those cities, and the cities are all different. No, they're both, both Kansas City and Philadelphia are very intense cities in terms of football. Oh, yes. I grew up in New Jersey about half hour from Philly. So I understand Philly fans. Yeah, they're a little more intense in Kansas City. Kansas City is a little more compassionate, a little more understanding about uh, both great cities. I live in Philadelphia area, so I'm here with my family. But uh, working in Kansas City and working in Philadelphia, uh, when you work for great people, it just really enhances the experience. What about the Rose Bowl, too? Winning a Rose Bowl. That's got to be way up there, too, from a well, life that, experience. I mean, imagine, you know, I'd come out of high school coaching to junior college to college, you know, and become a head coach at UCLA. And the reason I became head coach is Pepper Rogers left. God bless him, was just passed away. Pepper Rogers left and took the Georgia Tech job, his alma mater, and they brought me back to be the head coach at UCLA. If he doesn't leave, I'm not there. We had played Ohio State in the regular season, and they'd beaten us. I think it was 41-20. Then to be able to go on and become a better team and uh, to play them again, we were uh, varied from 15 to 21-point underdogs in the ballgame, and then we upset them. And they were national champions in number one ranking at that time. And uh, when we won that game, the national championship moved to, I think, Oklahoma, Nebraska, if I remember right, down in Florida, played in the Orange Bowl. But it was a, it was a major upset. My team played extremely well, and I had been selling those kids through all the 16 weeks, 16 days of practice, that the only way we could beat Ohio State is for all of us to have our best game at the same day. You know, a lot of people have the best game they ever played in their career, and you lose because the rest of the team didn't play as well. So our goal was for all of us as coaches and all of us as players, regardless of what your responsibilities were or the role you were going to play, it was going to be the best you've ever done it. And fortunately for us, it ended up being that. It was a big, big win. And hey, a few days later, I'm the head coach of Philadelphia Eagles because of it. Yeah, that's crazy. It was crazy. Yeah. So last football anecdote story is it's a good bridge because I want to hear about the time that you sort of maybe bribed a kicker with a bottle of wine. Well, most people know Morton Anderson, who was a Hall of Fame kicker. Okay. And we had Morton at the end of his career. And Morton Anderson is a big time wine guy. Probably the most knowledgeable wine guy in the National Football League that I have been around, okay, and really enjoys wine. And we had shared some wine in the offseason and that kind of stuff. So he's going to go out to kick a field goal at the final seconds against the Raiders. And I, I said to him, you know, Morton, you make this field goal. I'll give you a bottle of my Bryant family Cabernet, which is extremely hard to get. Some of them get 100 ratings. And uh, his eyebrows went up. He said, oh, my God, he went and boom, he popped it through. So we went to ball game. So the first question I'm asked in the press conference, I'm not even thinking about it anymore, is what did you say to Morton Anderson before he went on the field? Because he went out and I called him back and grabbed him. And uh, I said, I told him if he made the field goal, I'd give him a bottle of Bryant Family Vineyard. Uh, and uh, boy, uh, then it started a buzz. And then we'd heard it supposedly it was not legal uh, to do that. Salary cap reasons and all that. So I wasn't able to do it. Don Bryant of Bryant Family Vineyard called me personally 
because he lived in San Jose, in St. Louis, so I knew him personally. And he said he had never, ever gotten the kind of publicity for his winery uh, that he got off that one happening. And uh, later on that week, I gave Morton that bottle of Cabernet. In fact, Morton Anderson probably is my single best customer in our wine business today. <laughs> he loves our wine and he's sophisticated wine guy. He drinks high-end, high-quality wines, and he knows what he's talking about. So uh, I appreciate his support, he, even then, even more so now that we're making a living on the wine business. How do you decide that you want to go into this? Like, obviously, you're, you're a wine guy, and you're, you know, learning about it, and then to make that jump and be like, this is something I actually want to do from a business. Well, first, when you're born in the Napa Valley like I was, 1936, long time ago, there's only a few things there in the valley. There were prunes grapes and walnuts and most of the kids in school lived out somewhere either family had vineyards family had prune orchards walnut orchards and they in the little it was 1800 people in town at that time so uh it was always around and my grandfather Vermeil made all our family wine and i grew up helping him some, you know, I didn't know the technical things, but I could help with the labor and those kind of things. And it always interested me how my family would talk about the wines on the holidays and what it meant to them and the taste, the flavors, and how the vintage compared with three years ago or four years ago and the prediction for the vintage this next year. And my great-grandfather had purchased land in the Napa Valley. That's why I was there. I was born in my great-grandfather's home and he had owned a portion of the Freddie Annie Vineyard. I still get my grapes from the Freddie Annie Vineyard today. Oh, wow. So it, it was in my background. It was in my background in 1999, believe it or not. We made between 150 and 200 cases of Jean-Louis Vermeil, which is actually Vatimay, Cabernet. Okay. And it was 76 to 80% Cabernet. The rest was Cabernet Franc. And on the Edge Winery, Paul Smith made the wine. He sold it as his Cabernet. It was a little tiny winery. I had no money involved in it. And we did that for the next uh, 2008. And some friends of mine came to me and said, let's take your hobby. Let's take your background and your knowledge and your, your association with different people, the vineyard and the winemaker and the winery, and turn it into a full-fledged business. So we turned it into Vermeer Wines. And now we're making... 25 to 3,000 cases of wine a year, three different Cabernets, a Zinfandel, uh, Cabernet Franc, Sauvignon Blanc. Chardonnay is the only one the grapes do not come from the Freddie Annie Vineyard. They come from Dutton Ranch. But uh, the signature bottles are our Cabernet. But see, we made 95 bottles of this. See, we don't make a lot. Then the two other Cabernets, we made 125. This is 76% Cab. It has to be 75% to be called the distinct label. And then we make 125 or 130 cases of what we call Rosedale Cab and Vermeil Cab and Pickett Road, which are on isolated blocks in the vineyard. But uh, good wine. Thomas Brown is our consultant. Andy Jones makes their wine. They work together. We get between 96 and 90 grades on our wines now. And uh, hopefully uh, we're even going to get better grades in the future. But uh, tough business. Do you get to do taste testing? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We're, we're going to be doing some of these Zoom tastings now with customers. Uh, we have about 370 wine club members right now. We've, we've got to double that in the next two or to three years. Our tasting room in Napa is closed right now, which hurts our direct sales. So we depend on our wine club and uh, online sales. 
people can Google Vermeil wines and, and buy it online and it, deliver it right to your door, which is a nice advantage. But uh, we don't tell it anybody it's any better than anybody else. That's up to the person that tastes it. But our effort is to make high-end, quality, quality wine. You live outside of Philadelphia. How often are you in the Napa area? Normally, I'm out there in April and July, and I'm out there the month of September. It depends, right? I didn't go April this year because of the pandemic. You know, and I, I don't, I'm not a big need out there. I uh, I can really sell it when I'm out there. Uh, I drive a tractor during uh, harvest and picking, which is fun. And I do some delivering because the Freddie Annie Vineyard is a 170-acre vineyard. We, we get 45 tons off it, okay? You know, and when you say four to six tons per acre, there's a lot of tonnage that comes off that thing. 400 tons a year come off that or more. And so it sold a lot of the high-end wineries. And I will go along with the driver and deliver and get to talk to the other wineries and meet people. It's fun. I really enjoy it. Let's say someone is starting out, getting into wine. What what do you recommend for them? What types of wine or, or specific regions? Well, you know, I'm, I'm sold on California wines. No, you know, Napa Valley only produces about 4% of the wines for the United States, but they're the, the high end, they're the quality wines. Sonoma County is equal. Some people say it's not, but a lot of the Sonoma County wines are outstanding, especially the Pinot Noirs and the Chardonnays. But uh, I, I would say start with a moderate price. If you, you know, if, if a bottle of wine you pay $12 for tastes good to you, it's good wine. But what I have found with people that I break into wine tasting and drinking, always start with wines you can afford. And usually when you do that, you start drinking and each time you taste a better one, your, your standard is raised and so is the price. And especially today. But I'm, I'm not a wine snob, though I can tell you a few of the most expensive wines in the Napa Valley are the best I've ever had. I don't know if they still are anymore because I can't buy them at $700 a bottle or they never used to be that in the old days. Okay. Bryant family now is $507 a bottle of wine. I paid $85, $90 for it years ago. You know, experiment and find wines that taste good to you. It normally, there's two whites that people will, will try, Sauvignon Blanc and Chardonnay. And there's many, many different varieties of both of those. I'm a Chardonnay guy. I'm not a big Sauvignon Blanc guy. We make an excellent Sauvignon Blanc. It's not nearly as expensive to make because the grapes don't cost as much per ton. The Chardonnay costs more because it costs more. The Cabernet costs a lot more because it's 10,000 plus a ton. But I would I would summarize it. Buy wines you can afford, taste them for a while, and, and then keep upgrading a little bit. And sometimes you'll buy less wine, but better wine, you know, and you'll get to a point pretty quick where you, you don't have to be an expert. All you have to do is know what tastes good to you. And I've gotten so I know what I like. And uh, when something's really good, it sometimes it surprised me. I opened a bottle of wine here the other night. It was 1978. Okay, 1978 Chateau Montalina. It was outstanding. I start moderately priced. You buy very inexpensive wines, you may not like them. I am a Savion Blanc person. And then I'm Malbec most of the time. Oh, nothing wrong with those. I've got some here. You can't believe them. They're outstanding. Love Malbecs, but also love cabs, Pinot Noirs, like from California or Oregon. So good. Oregon's outstanding. State of Washington's outstanding. Yeah. It's just like you could just drink yourself all the way up the West Coast. No question. No question. In Napa Valley, you can do it. I love going wine tasting in Napa Valley. I've done Sonoma, but but not Napa. So I need to, I need to go back, obviously. You, you send me your address. I'll send you a few samples. I, I would love to. It's hard to find, as you were talking about. It's hard to find your wine. When you're only making 2,500 cases, you know, 
You send me your address. I'll send you a sample. I will absolutely take you up on that. Um, Do you, like, if you're watching a great game, like, obviously people think about, like, drinking beer and watching a game. But, you know, we're, we're refined people. We like our wine. We're watching, like, you know, an NFL playoff game. What are we drinking with? Well, it depends on what time of day. (laughs) <laughs> I guess you're right. Off, <laughs> one o'clock kickoff, you're not drinking anything. Okay. The four o'clock game comes on. You might, I might open a glass of wine. And, you know, I like to sip on a Chardonnay. My wife, not. She'll sip on a, a Sauvignon Blanc. And then if I know, I usually know what I'm going to have for dinner between the second game on Sunday and the third game. And I'll, I'll have a bottle decanted and breathing. And if, uh, I'll sip on that a little bit, uh, the red of some kind. There's, there isn't a red made that I, dislike now i i would my premium i would say cabernet i like the heavy body the the, the texture the tannins the, the smoothness the full body uh some of the flavors i can't distinguish all the different flavors the experts can but i know it tastes good to me and i know if it's extremely well made i had such a large i had three thousand bottles of wine in this house when i retired and came home in 06 because I, I brought a lot of home from Kansas City with me and filled up wine cellars. So I had I very seldom drink my own Vermeil wines here. I'm drinking my old wines that I've had. You've got to drink them before they re- eventually. You wasted your money if you didn't drink them. Fortunately, my sons enjoy it. My son-in-law and daughter-in-law enjoyed it. So we share wines with them as well. So last question. You're stuck on a desert island. What's the bottle of wine that you're bringing? And, and someone's going to give it to me or I'm going to buy it? <laughs> this is, you had, you had like... 30 seconds, you can grab something. I'll tell you, I'll say, uh, I, I would buy my Rosedale Block Cabernet. Our Rosedale Block, it's only six rows. We make about 130. This year, it's going to be about 150 uh, cases a bottle of that Cabernet. And Thomas Brown is our, our consultant. I call him the Tom Brady of the Napa Valley. He's the, one of the number one winemakers on a consistent basis year in and out. Produced many, many, many 100 peer rated labels, 100 ratings. He feels that our Rosedale block has the best potential on a gray year to produce the 97, 98, 99, 100 rated Cabernet. Wow. It, it's the soil. It's the, and you know, you can make four first downs and the soil's different. You know, it's amazing. There, there's only a quarter mile between Pickett Road and Rosedale block. Across the street from Pickett Road is a Rajo, which is bought now by the French. That's $400 a bottle. And a first down away is Pickett Road, our Cabernet, which is $125 a bottle. So if you're sophisticated, you might be able to tell the difference, but I doubt it. I like that you measure it in first downs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Coach, this was this was a lot of fun. It is officially uh, after five o'clock, so I will be getting a glass of wine now that we wrap this up. But thank you so much for doing this. This was a blast. My pleasure. And don't forget to send me your address. That was our interview with Dick Vermeil. Check out all of our episodes on the SiriusXM app, Pandora, and Apple Podcasts. I'm Nicole Auerbach, and I'll talk to you next time inside the Coach's Clubhouse.